Okay, turn to Ezra chapter 5. Ezra 5. Have the battle of the uh, between uh, Silent Night and No Holy Night as a regular annual situation. I don't have notes tonight. It's not complicated. Last week was a little bit trying to sort out the chapter, how it was uh, formulated, so I had notes. This week is pretty simple <laughs> as far as that is concerned. We're going to do a little review first of what we've covered to get our bearings straight. If you recall, in Ezra chapter 1, Cyrus the king had issued a decree. Uh, chapter 1, verse 2 says, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever there is among, of all, among you of all his people, may his God be with him. Let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord the God of Israel, he is the God who is in Jerusalem. And so he issues this decree. The temple's in ruins at this time because they had been in Babylonian captivity. Babylon had destroyed the temple. And so now they're going to go back and rebuild it. This is the declared will of God. There's no doubt about it. He makes, he, he, he endorses, uh, Cyrus endorses that which God has already commanded. God has already promised it. And now Cyrus carries this out in history. And then the Lord moves on the hearts of the people and they respond, look at verse uh, 5 of chapter 1. Then the heads of the father's household of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites arose, even everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up and rebuild the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. And so they do this. They respond. And the first thing they must do when they get there is they start getting the supplies ready to rebuild this foundation of the temple. In the meantime, they build an altar, a burnt offering in chapter 3 to start worshiping. Plus, they're kind of they're fearful of the people of the land. And so people of the land had inhabited the land of Israel in their absence. Foreigners had inhabited the place. They're afraid of them. They're the enemies of Israel. And so they are able then to lay the foundation of the temple. So far, so good. Everything's going good, just like planned. But then, chapter 4, there is opposition from the enemies of God. They will present... A force to, they are going to be a force to be reckoned with. This is the work that God initiated, but nevertheless, there's opposition. There always is to God's work. The enemies tried various forms of opposition. They tried to discourage the people. They, first of all, they tried to form an ecumenical alliance. They said, hey, we're like you. We want to help you build the temple. We worship the same God you do. Uh, but they did not have the same theological doctrinal understanding of God that the Jews did. In fact, they believed in worship of all kinds of idols and all kinds of gods. And so they said, no thanks, we'll do this ourselves." And then they tried to discourage them. And then they tried to frighten them. And they tried to frustrate their plans. And it works. If you look at chapter 4, verse 24, the last verse in chapter 24, it says the work of the house of God in Jerusalem ceased, stopped. And if you don't think discouragement and... Bad counsel and, and fear is uh, a detriment to the work of God, you would be sadly mistaken. And it happened here. Satan will throw every fiery dart in his arsenal at the people of God, at the work of God, to try to get them to get out of the work of God and to stop the work of God altogether and to defeat the Lord's purposes. Now, as we know, now we know as we bring it to the Lord's, uh, or rather to the New Testament age, age of the church, we come to this age in Matthew 16. The, God, the Bible says the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. And so the church and the work of God are, are not going to be ultimately defeated. The church in our age will go on, will go on under the underside of the chief shepherd. It's going to carry on 
and uh, it's going to continue on. However, if we are not trusting the Lord as we should, if we're not looking to him, if we're not in tune with him, discouragement can take us down. It can take a great toll on us. And we must strengthen ourselves in the Lord, just like David did in 1 Samuel, strengthen yourselves in the Lord your God. So the work of the building of the temple comes to a screeching halt. Now this is, you know, when you start in chapter 1, it's it's amazing because they're going to rebuild the temple. And everybody's in on the the deal and everybody's happy about it. And they start to do it. Now it's, it's stopped altogether. It doesn't stop just for a day or a week or for a little while, but approximately for 16 years. Nothing happens for 16 years. No building, nothing at all. Now, that's based on Ezra 3.8, that the uh, building, they had been to the land maybe about two years, had begun building, and, uh, and that would be about 536 B.C. And then it says in chapter 4, verse 24, that the building stops, uh, starts again in the second year of Darius. That's about 520 B.C. Subtract 520 B.C. from 530, you get 16 years, 15, 16 years of absolutely no work on the temple. Now, have you ever seen residential areas that look like they're getting ready to be built, and they're gonna, they have plans for a lot of houses, and there's a wall out front? They do this in a lot of residences, right? And it's got the name of the neighborhood, you know, the Cove or whatever. And there's no houses. And something happens. And I've seen this more than once. I've seen it in different cities. And there's no houses that are ever built. And it remains empty because the money stopped. Something went wrong with the finances of this operation, whatever happened. used to have one on Livingston Avenue, this project that was there for years. You go down Livingston Avenue, I see it several times. There's a wall out front. You're going to have this great residential area here. No houses because something happened, and they went under financially, whatever, and nothing was built. And, you know, you, you go by that, and you think, man, what in the world happened here? It's always sad for me to see that. I've seen it in other cities, too. You go back and see, there's the wall there, you know, no houses. I don't know what happened. In this case, you have a foundation with no building on top of it. Imagine that. Think about that. There's a foundation there, no superstructure, no building on top of it for 16 years. It's like that. People pass by. What's happening here? <laughs> Nothing's happening here. No one did anything about it. No one lift a hand, lifts a hand to even attempt any work. The original enthusiasm for the work dies out, and guess what? Spiritual lethargy sets in. Nobody cares. Now, what could possibly get this effort going again? What do you think it's going to take? What do you think it's going to take to get this going again? Well, the answer may surprise you. It's going to take nothing less than the preaching of the Word of God. And that's what it takes. God is going to use preaching to motivate these people to get a move on and to get started again to do the work. Two preachers in particular are mentioned. Go to chapter 5. These two preachers are not John MacArthur and Steve Lawson. In fact, these two guys don't even have last names. They only have first names. Their names are Haggai and Zechariah. Now, if you grew up like I did and you started and you were saying Haggai, Haggai, that's fine. I don't care. But I actually learned the, the way to pronounce this is Haggai. But if, if I say Haggai, it's because I'm going back to my old days and I forgot what, how it's supposed to be said. But it doesn't matter. Haggai and Zechariah. Go to Ezra chapter 5, verse 1. When the prophets, Haggai the prophet, Zechariah the son of Idu, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them, then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, Jeshua, the son of Josadak, arose and began to rebuild the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. Those are great verses right there. 
It says they prophesied. Prophesy has two, two ideas. There's one of foretelling, F-O-R-E, foretelling to tell, to predict something. It's a predictive, ele- predictive element in, in, uh, in prophecy. And then there's forthtelling, F-O-R-T-H. That is just the preaching element in prophesying. You preach forth the word of truth. You can have predictions, but you preach forth the word of truth to meet the needs of the spirit, uh, spiritual needs of the people. And so it's these two prophets who are going to get the people back again to build the temple of God, get them back to the work of God. Haggai is a straight-talking prophet, doesn't mince words, just tells it like it is. And, and then you got Zechariah, more of a visionary, who talks about the glorious future of Israel and to look forward to the future. These two guys are going to deliver a one-two punch to get the, the people moving again on this temple that's been desolate for 16 years. Now, at this point, we're going to leave the book of Ezra, and we're going to go to Haggai. So turn to Haggai, book of Haggai, chapter 1. This is near the end of the Old Testament. We're going to return to Ezra 5 eventually, and we're going to develop that chapter. But And we'll say something about Zechariah at a later date. But tonight, I want us to hear at least the beginning of the message Haggai preached to the Jews, which we're only going to get to point one of that message tonight. In the book of Haggai, he will actually preach four messages or five, depending on how you look at it. Well, we're going to deal with the first message tonight. Go to Haggai chapter 1. There's not much in the way of introduction here. All the information can be found in chapter 1, verse 1. Let's read that. Haggai 1, 1. In the second year of Darius the king, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came by the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. So you have four facts that are presented here in the way, by way of introduction. First of all, the timing of the message. The timing of the message. It says it's in the second year of Darius the king. And we see that also in uh, chapter 4, verse 24 of Ezra. Haggai believes in exact dating. If you read the book of Haggai, which doesn't take you very long, everything's an exact date. And we not only have the year, but also the month and the day. It's the first day of the sixth month of that year. For us, that means August 29th, 520 B.C. Mark it on your calendar. August 29th, 520 B.C. The book of Haggai only covers four months of his ministry, but they're all dated, every sermon. That's the timing of the message. And then you have the preacher of the message. It says that uh, it's the prophet Haggai. However, that's all you're told. No background information. You ever seen these guys that are the well-known preachers that get introduced by somebody? This is Dr. So-and-so. You know, he's got all these books he's written, and he's done all this and built these great churches and so on and so forth. Not Haggai. No, no background information. No mention of his father, which is typical of prophets who usually mention their father. No reference to his hometown, like Micah, for example. We know nothing about him except that he's a prophet, and we know something about the sermon content of his book, sermons that he preaches. Haggai just wants to get to the message. Then we go to the, the audience uh, of, of Haggai. Verse 1, it's directed to Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel here is called the governor of Judah. So he eventually held this position uh, as kind of presiding over his people. He's a civil leader. And it says to Joshua the high priest. Now, Joshua the high priest is called Jeshua in Ezra. Jeshua and Ezra, Joshua and Haggai, same guy. And Ezra 5.1 adds that Haggai prophesied to the Jews. So I take it. The people in general heard the messages, but in particular, the target, the prime target of the message is, is Zerubbabel and Joshua, the leaders. 
civic and spiritual leader of, that, of those people. And it looks as though the spiritual zeal of the leadership and the people had waned through these 16 years. And so we find these, especially do we find the leadership in the audience, and the reason is obvious, you know, the leadership should be the first to respond to the truth. They should set the example for the people. And so they're there in the audience listening to these messages. Let me say a word about this, though. We, we, we expect the leadership of God's work to be in a spiritual condition, you know, ready to go at their spiritual best 24 hours a day. That's what we expect, right? Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't expect this. <laughs> However, you know, as well as I do, that they can get discouraged just like everybody else. Let me tell you a little secret, if you don't know this. Preachers and pastors, people like that, they can get discouraged like everybody else. That's true. And uh, they can get frightened like everybody else, like these people did. They can get frustrated like everybody else. You know, sometimes uh, when we've been at the Shepherds Conference, and you have all these pastors in the room, you talk to them and you realize, hey, this guy's discouraged. He's discouraged about his ministry back in such and such a state that he's pastoring in, and he's discouraged about what's happening in his church, and the people don't seem to be complying, and this and that's happening. And guys get discouraged. They're seeking encouragement at the conference. You hear about pastors who are on the verge of quitting. You hear about that every once in a while. This guy is about ready to quit because he is just feels like he's been overwhelmed by a lot of things, totally discouraged, sometimes because of church split. And their de- church splits can devastate churches and pastors. You know, some Christians seem to think that pastors are, not, are, are immune to the frailties of the flesh, but that is not true. <laughs> not true at all. That's why they need your prayers. And the guy preaching the sermon, guess what? He needs to hear sermons too. He's the word of God like everybody else, not trying to uh, give a case for feeling sorry for your pastor. I'm just telling you this is reality. People get discouraged, even leadership. So here you have Jeshua, the high priest, and you have Zerubbabel, the civic leader. They have not done anything for 16 years. Mike's not discouraged right now. Everybody's looking over at Mike. He's not discouraged. To my knowledge, he's not discouraged. Maybe he is. I don't know. All right, let's go to the origin of the message, number four. You know, I said earlier... It was by the preaching of the word that people were motivated. They're going to get motivated to do something because Haggai, Zechariah are preaching. Uh, the first verse, look at the first verse of Haggai. It actually says the word of the Lord came by the prophet Haggai, which literally it's the word of the Lord came by the hand of the prophet Haggai. It says that in verse 3 also, exactly the same thing. And then in verse 2, Haggai says those familiar words in the Old Testament, thus says the Lord of hosts. What's interesting about this, similar statements to that are made 27 times in two chapters in this short book. Again and again and again, Haggai wants to know, hey, I didn't originate this message. This is not from my own mind, my own genius. This came from God. He's the one that originated the message and gave it to me. Haggai's the instrument through which the word of God will come. You know, may I say this? If we are not preaching the word of God, we're not preaching at all. Think about this. I've talked to people about, we've talked a lot about preaching. What is preaching? What is it really? And there's, this, there's always been this phenomenon of, of preaching that it can be anything but, the, the word, but preaching the word of God. It can be all kinds of other stuff going on, and it is in our country. And if we're not preaching the word, we're not, we're not, uh, we're not preaching at all, at least not biblical preaching. Not at all. We're doing something else, and there are many people pastors and preachers who are doing everything under the sun except doing the one thing that Haggai and all these guys did in the the Bible, preach the word. Very simple, we preach the word. We have only one message. 
And that message is the word of God, and we had better take it seriously. We had better deliver that message. There is no other message, no, no reason to be here outside of that. Now, I'm going to outline Haggai's first sermon, and I hope that when I run into Haggai in heaven, he's not too upset with me. But this sermon will address the 16 years of delay uh, between, between the time they quit and then to this point where they're doing nothing at all, not building the temple. Three main points. First of all, a lame excuse. Second of all, a divine rebuke. And thirdly, a reverential response. Now, tonight we're only going to deal with the first point, a lame excuse. That's verse 2. Look at verse 2. Thus says the Lord of hosts, This people says, The time has not come, even the time for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. Time hasn't come yet. Notice that phrase. Notice what the Lord calls his people here. What does he say? how, How does he... Refer to them. He says, this people. He doesn't say my people. He says, this people. It's, just, it's as if he, the Lord is holding his, arm, uh, holding his people at an arm's length. There's some distance between him and his, him and his people. It's like he's, he's referring to foreign people when he says this people. Maybe Egypt or Assyria or somebody. Now, David said in Psalm 95, we are his people. But the Lord says in this book, this people. You know, it's like it's kind of like a parent who gets up frustrated with their child and, and has told the child to do something. Do I want you to do this responsibility here? And told repeatedly, you guys all know the scenario, right? And the child doesn't do it. And so, what happens in some cases? The mother calls the child not by his first name. She calls the child by his first name, middle name, and last name, and says it very plainly and bluntly. And that child then knows, that's the signal, I've pushed my mother to her limits. I've tested her patience, she means business, I'm, I better get serious. And that's what the Lord's doing here. This people, now they haven't been in the land very long, but he's already express, expressing his displeasure with them. This is the same way he referred to them in Isaiah 6, Isaiah 6, the chapter where uh, Isaiah sees the vision of, of the Lord. And then in Isaiah 6, 9, the Lord said, go and tell this people, not my people, go tell this people, keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, do not understand. This is the call of Isaiah. Hey, I want you to go preach the message, tell them, I, I don't, I'm not going to respond to these people at all. Tell them that. Why did he say that? Because the people of Isaiah's time had hardened their hearts to God, weren't paying attention to him, weren't listening to him, and so the Lord wants to confirm them in their and their hardness of heart. And it displeases him. And he's and Isaiah, or rather Haggai, clearly displeased with the people. So he says, this people. But why does he say this? Why is he so displeased? Look at what they said. Verse 2. Listen to what they said. The time has not come, even the time for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. Have you ever heard anyone say, have you ever said to other people, now is not a good time? Now is not a good time. The circumstances are such that, you know, the baby's crying. The house is falling apart. Things are going on here. Now is not a good time. And so, you know, we say that, right? If someone says that to me, oh, now is not a good time to do that. I'll say, okay, I get it. I get it. But let me give you some advice. Never say to the Lord, now is not a good time. You can say it to me all day long. It doesn't matter. Don't say it to him. Now is not a good time. Sorry, Lord, but the timing is horrible. I'll serve you at a later date. Just not now. Don't do that. You know, it wasn't that the people said they'll never rebuild the temple. They didn't say that. 
They just said, now is not the time. They didn't say no, they just said not yet. Not yet, it's not ready, it's not time, give us time. But we've already seen that it was the Lord who who got a hold of Cyrus and he made the decree to rebuild the temple. It was the Lord who stirred King Cyrus for this. It was the Lord who stirred his people to do this. It was the Lord who promised that the temple would be rebuilt. And the people go and do this. But now they're saying, you know, the timing's off a bit here. We're waiting for a more opportune time to start rebuilding. It's been 16 years. What are you waiting for? Now, how did they arrive at this, this attitude? They started off on the right foot. They rebuilt, they built the altar right away. They acquired the materials for the temple. But then they ran into opposition, and that effectively ended the building program. So we could say, well, it was the opposition. They got discouraged. They got frustrated. They were fearful. Uh, but you know, the people of God is all, have always faced opposition. When have they not faced opposition? They always will face opposition. Nothing new about that at all. But the real reason, the real reason for this lackadaisical attitude is found in verses 3 and 4. Look at verse 3 of Haggai chapter 1. <clears throat> then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet saying, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies desolate? Ezra doesn't mention that. Haggai does. He brings up something that we don't know about. And just to make his point more blunt, he uses an emphatic phrase here, you yourselves. He said earlier, I said this people, but what I meant is you. You guys are at fault. What are you people doing here anyway? You say, you talk about time. You say you're concerned about time. You're concerned about timing. You said it's not yet time to build the Lord's house. But yet somehow you do find time to build your own house. How is that? You complete your own house. And you even add some nice things to your house. The house of the people here are described as being paneled. That word can mean either a covering or a roof or a wooden paneling inside the house. is made of cedar wood. The Hebrew scholars tell us it's hard to really determine which one they're talking about here. But we get the idea. The idea is plain enough. They said the time was right for them to finish the rebuilding of their own houses to make sure they were roofed. It may be even decorated, maybe even with cedar paneling inside. Time was right for that. That was their priority. But the house of God all the while lay in ruins. They'd pass by and just see a foundation. That's all they would see. You know, and, and when they built the house of God, we're talking about the worship of God to the full extent he required in the Old Testament. You know, the, wor- the, the, the house of God had no roof on it, had no paneling, had no covering. It's just a bare foundation. But the people did not see that as a priority. They just said, well, we'll put it on our to-do list. We'll get to it one day. We don't know when. Someday. You know, this is nothing more than a lame excuse. That's all it is. A lame excuse. It's a pathetic attitude. The people have become selfish and indifferent to the things of God. They have their own interests to think about here. This is, this is not just an external issue either. Well, we're talking about a building. So what? It's what happened in the building. It's the worship of God that took place. God is exalted there in his temple. He's worshipped. They just didn't care. They got to the point where they didn't care. And the problem with these people lay in their heart attitude. That's the whole problem. Their heart attitude. They just don't care. They had been in the land a short time. They're drifting away. In their heart, they're drifting away. Like Hebrews says, don't drift away. You know, you would think after 70 years of time, think about that. 70 years of time in Babylon, they wouldn't have this problem. After being disciplined all that time, 
They wouldn't have this attitude. But it only goes to show you that procrastination and postponement of God's work and an apathetic attitude is always a problem for the people of God. It is always a problem. There are always other priorities to occupy our time with. There's always something else to do that's a priority outside of the work of God. And if we actually spoke these words, we wouldn't do it. If we actually spoke these words and told people what was in our hearts, we would say, well, God can wait. He can wait. His service can wait. His church can wait. His people can wait. I have more pressing issues going on right now. I'll get to it one day, not this day, however. I'll get to it eventually. We would never say that. But our actions speak louder than words in this case. We'll be faithful to church one day, right? That day. We'll, we're, we're planning on getting involved in the service of the Lord one day. We're planning on being committed to Christ's church one day. We'll give to the Lord one day, just not this day. We're not saying we're never going to do this. We're just not saying we're not yet going to do this. We're not even saying that. We're thinking it or we're doing it. We wait for a more convenient time. More convenient time. Things aren't right right now. It's never right, right? Never right. We get in the bad habit of pursuing our own interests in life. And we give God a little time. Well, I give God a little time here, but mainly it's about what we're doing. I've got plans here. I've got things going on here. I've got a future to think about here. And so, and we get to the point where we think that this lackadaisical attitude we have is perfectly fine with the Lord. He's accepting this, but he's not accepting this. And Haggai tells it very clearly. You guys just don't care. You flat out don't care. You're saying you're, you're worried about your own houses. You're not worried about the temple with the foundation over here and nothing else. Let me ask you a question. Is, it ever, is there ever a perfect time to serve the Lord when all the circumstances in your life are perfect? Everything is great. If I wait for, fi- for my finances to be in order before I serve the Lord, I'm never going to serve him. If I wait for my house to be fixed up properly, <laughs> I can guarantee you I'm never going to serve him. If I wait for that promotion at work, Mike, that promotion you promised me, uh, I'm never going to serve him. If I wait for my health to be perfect, never going to happen. Now, there's legitimate reasons. Don't get me wrong. There's legitimate things. Maybe you're deathly sick. Maybe you're in the hospital. Maybe something's happening where there's a serious problem. I get it. But too many times we're making lame excuses. I've heard heard every one of them. (laughs) I've heard every excuse. I've given some myself. I've heard everyone in the book, and even those that are not in the book. I wish I could write a book about this. It's absolutely fascinating. Every, every excuse for not doing the Lord's work when the reality is we're just selfish, we're preoccupied with what we're doing, I've got my own thing going on here. Can't you see this? My own plans. That's what I want to do. It's not, only, it's not only believers who are caught in this trap, but also unbelievers who are postponing the day of their salvation. That happens too. They get busy, right? They get busy with their lives. They get busy pursuing their own goals. They get busy with what they're doing. Somebody witnesses this to them, and they say, well, one day I'll think about eternity. One day. But that day never comes. It never comes, and then they perish without Christ. I'll never forget one day, years ago, <clears throat> when we lived in northern Indiana, or I did, and we were uh, going door to door and uh, uh, visiting people and, and t- trying to talk to them about the gospel, and I had a friend with me, and it got to be about 8.30 at night. And we said, well, we'll knock on one more door. And we did. And the person answered the door. And uh, we told him who we were. And he started slowly shutting the door. And he said, it's late. And I never forget my friend Gary Harrison, I love to death, said, 
never forget this guy. It's later than you think. Now, that may be a, a, and he closed the door. That may be a rude response, but there's so many people who have this attitude. They, you know, they're not interested. You know, it reminds me of the, of the rich man in Luke chapter 12, the rich man who had all this wealth he piled up, but he gave no thought for his soul, never thought about his soul. That wasn't important at all. And he said this, I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. For many years. I got all kinds of years left. I got all kinds of time left to build more wealth. And uh, what he, he says, take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. Take it easy. Uh, he had no idea this was his last day on the planet. No idea at all. And God says to him, you fool, this night your soul is required of you. And now who will own what you have prepared? For him, the, friend, the words of my friend are true. It's later than you think. And sadly, my friend who was 25 years old, who, who, when he got to be 25 years old, died. And uh, he was a believer. But no one knows. No one knows how much time we have. Augustine, the man who became the famous theologian who lived in the 4th century, uh, before he was saved, he lived for many years immoral life. He lived with a woman, had a child out of wedlock. His mother said to him, look, he used to be a Catholic, Augustine, and he rejected Catholicism, and he was kind of doing his own thing, got involved in another religion. And his mother said, uh, look, you need to break up with this woman. And uh, I, I tell you what, I've got a, a girl here I've got lined up for you. I'll get you to marry her. I'll get this thing arranged. He said, okay. He broke up with that first woman, and his mother arranged this other marriage, and it took two years for this to happen. In the meantime, Augustine says, forget this. He finds another woman that lives with her. He's unsaved at the time. It's at this time he made his famous prayer. Listen to his prayer. While he's unsaved, he says, Oh, Lord, give me chastity and self-control. Give me chastity and self-control, but not yet. Not yet. Can you give me some more time with this? You know, unbelievers are making their excuses. They're always making their excuses for putting off the day of salvation. But here's what's really pitiful. When believers put off their day of serving the Lord. They put that off. And uh, that's just disobedience. Flat out disobedience. For people who know better, believers who are true believers know better, right? This is a very convicting question Haggai asked in verse 4. Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your panel houses while this house lies desolate? This house is the Lord's house. This is the house of the Lord, temple. Let me ask you a question. Which house is getting the most attention? The people's houses or this house? Well, the people's houses were getting all the attention. The Lord's house was getting how much attention? None. Zero. For 16 years. Had the Lord not intervened by means of the prophets. Here come the preachers. Here they come. Haggai and Zechariah. Had the Lord not intervened by the means of these guys, I wonder how many more years it would have been. Would it have been 17 years? 20 years? 30 years? Ever? I don't know. There's a little poem I've always loved. I said it once before here. It's a very convicting poem. It says this, Only one life will soon be passed. It will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only what's done for Christ. Life can whiz by us. With all our great plans, we're going to do this and that, one, but we're going to serve the Lord one day, but whiz by and then it's all over with. Nobody knows. God's house, there it's just laid, it lays desolate, it sits in ruins, being totally ignored by the people. They don't care. Nobody cares. 
Leadership didn't care either. If you want to see a great contrast, and these are good men, these leaders, but they just don't seem to care right now. If you want to see a great contrast between what some people in the Old Testament thought about the Lord's house and what others thought, go to 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7. And look what David says. This is before the t- there was a temple. Before there was a temple. 2 Samuel 7, verse 1. Uh, says here, now it came about when the king, King David, lived in his house. Got a nice house, David does. And the Lord had given him rest on every side from all his enemies. That the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells within tent curtains. David realized that, wait a minute. I've got this fancy house, great house. I've got everything I want. Anything I want I have, and yet God's house... There's not, a God, there's not a God's house at this point. It's just a tent. It was literally in a tent at the time. Not even a tabernacle, just a tent. And here David, unlike the people in Haggai's time, is concerned. He desires to build this house. God doesn't let him. He lets Solomon build it. But David promotes the idea. Go to Psalm 132. To Psalm 132, verse 1. Psalm 132, verse 1. The psalmist said, Remember, O Lord, on David's behalf, all of his affliction, all David's affliction, how David swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob, Surely, listen to this, I will not enter my house, nor lie on my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. David didn't put his own house first. He's putting God's interest first, rather than his own. You know, last week I, I pointed out the passage in Matthew 16 where it says the Lord tells his disciples, look, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to die, I'm going to be raised again on the third day. And what does Peter do? Peter can't even imagine this scenario. And so he rebukes the Lord. Oh, this Lord, he says, this shall never happen to you. Then Jesus said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. But you know what else he said to him? The Lord says... To Peter, you are a stumbling block to me. For, why does he say that? He says, for you are not setting your mind on God's interest, but man's. You're not interested in things. The things that God's interest is this. Christ has got to go to the cross and die for sin. You're, You're not on that program. You're on your own program right now. You're not interested in what God's interested. That's the problem. That's the whole problem with the people in Haggai's time. Not interested in what God wants at this point. They were. They're not now. They were when they started, but not now. Time has elapsed. They have other uh, occupations or things to preoccupy their time. They've got to think about their own interests. And that's what happens. And so when we put other things ahead of the Lord, we're focusing on our own interests, not God. We'll pick up this, the rest of the sermon by Haggai next week. I uh, just wanted to cover that this week. But let me ask you a question. Where are your interests tonight? Think about this. What are you doing tonight? What, what are you pursuing in your life right now? What is it that you're pursuing? If, if, the, if your personal pursuits are taking you away from the Lord, they're taking you away from God, it's time to check your heart. Time to evaluate. If you're constantly making excuses for not assembling yourselves together in the house of God, it's time to think about what am I doing here? If you're not serving the Lord, no longer serving the Lord in some capacity, that's a red flag. 
what am I doing right now with my life? If you've drifted away from the Lord in your heart, you're heading down the wrong path. Do you do what Haggai, look at Haggai chapter 1 verse 5, five says, do what he says in verse 5. Now therefore, says the, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Consider your ways. Stop what you're doing and reevaluate. Where am I at right now? What am I doing? What am I thinking? It's time for us to consider our ways. Let this be the night. Let's, let's this night be a turning point for you if this is how you're thinking. You know, you need to get back to where you know you should be. We all know where we should be. Get back to that point. Get back to your first love. Go back to serving the Lord. That's what Haggai's message is. The Father waits with open arms. It's not a guilt message like Mike said, not put you on a guilt trip, not at all. This is meant to encourage you to get back to the Lord. The Lord awaits for his children to come back to him. Let's, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Let's commit ourselves to a renewed zeal for him. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for this message by Haggai tonight. We just pray, Lord, we'll take it to heart what he said. Lord, knowing that what he said applies to every generation of people. Lord, we put, pray we put you first, put your interests first, put your cause first before ours. We get our priorities straight, Lord, that you would be the number one priority in our life, that we would love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, our neighbor as ourself. We pray we would put you first in our life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.